Hi, this is Chris. And Lissa. From the Sugar Beet Food Co-op, Oak Park's natural food grocery store. And you're listening to 1590 WCGO, Chicago Smart Talk. The Mike Novak Show starts in 3, 2, 1. Live from a cul-de-sac somewhere in Evanston, Illinois. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. After 20 years, still Chicago's only deep green gardening and environment program. Heard every Saturday morning on 1590 WCGO. Chicago's Smart Talk. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. And true currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine will... Good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. They're sometimes called the odd couple. If only because the word aberrant doesn't fit in the logo. Here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. Half forest, no wetlands will. Good planets are in the main. Right. Testing, one, two. Here we are. Oh, we need. I need to actually turn mine on. I thought you guys handled that stuff. Okay. Aberrant. Aberrant. All right. You, you might as well turn your I'll mic turn on. I'll turn my mic turn on. Your, that's Peggy Malecki. <laughs> ben Boquist is uh, across the glass. That's a me. Uh, Morning, Ben. In the other room. Um, they're keeping us separated right now. Probably a good thing. Yeah, I think it, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, but we love him. We love them here uh, at uh, 1590 WCGO. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show. Uh, for Well, and I've been, as you know, I've been looking at my uh, birthday greetings here because uh, it, it is my birthday. Happy birthday. Uh, thank you. Thank you. If you heard the end of Mighty House, you heard a really, <laughs> really awful rendition of happy birthday. Define awful. I mean, it's all a matter of perspective. Uh, exquisitely awful. <laughs> How's that? Good. We did a great job. Okay. Uh, and uh, if you ask me, it's a it's a great day for a march. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, warm and sunny. There's going to be a lot of people down, oh, yeah. downtown, and I'm going to be one of them. As soon as I'm done with this show, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm getting down there. I'm going to catch at least some of that uh, today. Uh, but before we get there, there to the march, um, we got. Interesting stuff on the show. We meant to do this last week. As you know, okay, let's let's reiterate for those of you tuning in. Uh, hey, and I'll tell you what, if you are, if you're if you're headed down to the march and you want to call in uh, at 847-475-1590, 847-475-1590, Ben will pick up the phone and just say hi. Tell us where you're coming from, where are you headed. Uh, I know where you're headed, basically, Jackson and Columbus. Or, or tweet us at Mike Now. Or tweet us at Mike Now if you're on your way down. Uh, or if you're in D.C., if you're going to D.C. or some other um, rally mm-hmm. in another state or another city, anywhere in the country, uh, come in. It's happening right now. That's yeah. that's the deal. It's happening even as we speak. So some people are running late. Uh, if you want to call in, if you want to tweet, uh, let us know. Let us know which, what you're up to. Um, but uh, before we get to that, bees, bumblebees. Um, we were going to do the story last week. Oh, and, 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 and I interrupted myself. Um, that, uh, soon? No, no, uh, does, let's look at the schedule. No. The, uh, no. yeah, no, 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 that's, that's, that's coming up at, uh, Network three. uh, in, in, in the second break. So, um, let's see here. Um, we're an hour today and, uh, and we're going to be uh, until further notice, uh, at some point we're going to expand to two hours. So, uh, if you like the Mike Novak show, do, do let us know, go to, uh, my Facebook page, The Mike Novak Show. Give us a like. Give us a ding. Um, tweet us. Follow us on Twitter. Today, uh, as I said last week, we, we wanted to cover this because on the 10th of January, I saw a notice that the rusty-patched bumblebee had been added to the endangered species list. You're shaking a your bumblebee. head. bumblebee. Bumble- yeah, I know. A bumblebee. A you bumblebee. Go, a bumblebee. Really? Those, those big, docile, friendly bees. Yep. Yeah, 
And uh, we're going to find out why, where, what, uh, all of that stuff. And, with, and how being on the endangered species list might help them. Uh, and how it might hurt them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's something I want to bring up with Alan Lawrence, uh, who will be here in the studio. He's the associate curator of entomology at the Peggy Notabart Nature Museum. Uh, we're going to bring in Rich Hatfield on the phone, senior endangered species conservation biologist and bumblebee lead. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> bumblebee lead. I want to be a bumblebee lead. Um, and he's from the Xerces Society uh, for Invertebrate Conservation, uh, which is a pretty amazing group. And I've had them on the program in the past. So the two of those guys are going to duke it out here. Actually, they're going to work together to tell us uh, what's going on with uh, bumblebees. And uh, and then, of course, uh, in the last segment in the first hour, it's uh, Rick DeMaio weather, as we mentioned uh, to Ron Cowgill just a, a second ago. He is out in Seattle. So he'll be heavily caffeinated when he calls. I, uh, yeah. Oh, that's true, because it's two hours earlier. Uh, but, you know, by that time, it's almost 9 a.m. I hope, I hope we're not interrupting any of his... Uh, uh, his seminars, the conference stuff, and his hobnobbing. He'll be sitting around a table. He's probably going to show up. Yeah, i got to do my weather segment on the radio here. So uh, excuse me while I pick up the cell phone. All right, you're listening to the Mike Novak Show. Our number, 847-475-1590. If you're interested in bumblebees, give us a call. I think it's going to be a, a great conversation. Stick around. started vegetable seeds indoors and imagined the lush, gorgeous seedlings you'd plant in your garden just to be disappointed with the straggly small plants that actually grew? You're a candidate for the Happy Leaf LED Grow Light. It's five times more powerful than a T5 fluorescent bulb. T5s only start seeds and support some growth. But the Happy Leaf Light is an all-purpose LED with precisely tuned red and blue spectrums that allows the full range of plant growth. But if it's so good, why is it priced at just over $100? Well, selling directly to consumers allows Happy Leaf to price this within reach of the serious gardener who's seen grow lights that cost several hundred dollars. With the Happy Leaf LED, say goodbye to spindly tomato stalks forever and say hello to strong, lush plants that will make you the envy of the neighborhood. Find out more about Happy Leaf LED light at happyleafled.com or call 815-414-2209. Happy Leaf, it's about the light. Have you ever walked into a hair salon and been overwhelmed by the smell of chemicals? That's never going to happen at Organic Roots Eco Salon. They use only the safest, most natural, professional hair care products available to make sure you get exceptional color results that last and won't harm the environment or you. Their products and services are free from ammonia, formaldehyde, and other toxins ordinarily found in hair color, perms, and keratin smoothing treatments. Organic Roots offers non-toxic, vegan-friendly nail services. They've also just introduced a complete menu of natural hair care services for textured hair of all lengths. And how many salons do you think repurpose hair clippings, recycled product containers, and use LED lighting? Walk into 21st century hair care for women and men at Organic Roots Eco Salon, 3417 Dempster in Skokie. Book your appointment at organicrootsecosalon.com or call 847-423-2653. Health and beauty. You no longer have to sacrifice one for the other. Your talk. This is your talk. Only on 1590. Your talk. WCGO Evanston, Chicago. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show, all you cheap trick fans, and I know they're not a, I played this before for Peggy, and, and, and somebody else was in the studio at the time, and they said, no, nah, not, not particular fans, I'm like, well, okay, I like cheap trick. Uh, in the studio with us is uh, Alan Lawrence uh, from the Peggy Notabart Nature Museum, he is the Associate Curator of Entomology, are there any other titles we need to throw in there, Alan? 
Um, you could throw in assistant director of the Illinois Butterfly Monitoring Network. I like that one, too. Okay. Assistant director of the Illinois Butterfly Monitoring Network. Fantastic. And I believe that uh, on the phone right now we have Rich Hatfield from the Xerces Society. Rich, are you there? I am here, yes. Uh, Rich is a senior endangered species conservation biologist, and my favorite title of yours is Bumblebee Lead. What is a <laughs> <laughs> what is a bumblebee lead? Rich? That's a fair question. Uh, <laughs> we we just spend a lot of our resources um, protecting all kinds of invertebrates, and our bumblebee program is one aspect of that work. And so I lead up. I'm the head sort of conservation director of the bumblebee program at Xerces. And, I, and I've had you guys uh, uh, on the show before, and, and you, you do fantastic work, uh, as does the Peggy Notabart. But um, it, uh, we, we need we need people looking out after our insects. Uh, for the I think for the longest time, folks just assumed that when they paid attention to insects at all, they were nuisances. It's you know, spiders are icky, and bumblebees are scary. And spiders are scary. They had a bad encounter with an insect, and that's what they were. Someplace. Uh, centipedes are scary. Well, I have to tell you. But I, they're not insects. I but. used to be arachnophobic, but always wanted to be an entomologist. So. Really? Were you found arachnophobic? Way, well, okay, now, over. wait, 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 wait. Define arachnophobic. I mean, everybody, I think, has a slight little thing about spiders. I mean, you know, I, I do, too. I fight it. And when I see a spider, I, I rescued one the other day from my bathtub. I went, okay, dude, I don't know how you got down here. I, you know, here's me with a piece of mm-hmm. toilet paper trying to get the spider out of the bathtub. And he's like, dude, come on, come on, come on. Yeah. Help, me, help me out here. Help yeah. me out. And then they roll up in a little ball and don't help. Uh, well, simply put, when I was a child, if there was a, if I spotted a spider in my room, I would not sleep there for at least two days. Really? And so how do, how do you make uh, that? Oh, sorry, Rich, didn't mean to, <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. To, to interrupt, but how do you make that transformation? Um, you start working in a lab that has pet tarantulas in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, um, I am an Illinois master gardener, and they have the petting zoo, the insect petting zoo. So I have, I have had tarantulas on my hand and, you know, held them and shown them to people. And, you know, Madagascar hissing cockroaches, um, they're very popular. Um, and it's really kind of cool, you know, I, now I don't want to see a cockroach in my kitchen, but, uh, but the Madagascar hissing, uh, that's, that's okay. It's all right with me. What about you, Rich? Uh, have you, uh, have you come by this honestly? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever been terribly afraid of, of insects or spiders. I've always sort of been enamored by them. Cool. All right. Yeah. Well, you know, and it, it seems to me that it's, it's one of those two kinds of people in the world sorts of things that the ones that did the, and and i think a lot of kids look at spiders and insects and they go oh that's really cool and they have to be taught somehow that they're scary i think their parents do a lot of harm by saying oh stay away from that spider and then they get ingrained with this um, i don't think there's any question about that i think kids are born entomologists and we sort of breed it out of them by by scaring them about these these creatures and i you know it's, it's almost like the news right most of the news that we read is negative and so we have this fear in the world and so when people hear this negative aspects of insects they assume that all insects and invertebrates are bad and negative when in reality 90 percent of them are out there you know pollinating our crops decomposing and you know providing a base of the food chain for everything <laughs> So, you know, they're really important for ecosystem function and for our own lives. Well, you just said something, Rich, that I say all the time at Garden Talks. It's that 5% of the insects, I mean, we don't have an exact number, but somewhere, you know, we're talking 95%, 90% of yeah. in- insects are either beneficial or benign. It yep. means that they do their thing, we do our things, we don't get in each other's way, everything's cool. Even cockroaches, yep. only a handful of species invade homes. The several hundred other cockroaches stay outdoors. Oh, there we go. Uh, so even even cockroaches and <laughs> and they have a place in the world. They really do. They're yeah. uh, every living being serves a function, right? Indeed. All right. So let's get to bumblebees then, because I saw this story uh, and I got. So, if you want to see more information about this, go to my website, mikenovak.net, uh, and click on this week's show uh, because both. Uh, 
Rich and Alan sent me stuff, um, and you sent me a very interesting um, email that you got from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and it's basically it was on January 10th, and it said, hey, we're putting bumblebees on the endangered species list. Did that surprise you at all? Uh, no, not at all. Because um, when the Xerces Society submitted their petition for listing, the information in there was pretty alarming. And when U.S. and Fish and Wildlife finished their species status assessment, um, me and all my colleagues, our first instinct was, wow, how did we let this get so bad? Yeah, how, how, how did it get to be so bad? Who wants to start with that? Rich, maybe you, you since you guys put the uh, insect on, or you petitioned for it at the Xerces Society, how did it get so bad? Well, um, I think part of it is goes along with the conversation we started with is that a lot of people don't pay attention to insects. We sort of let them go about their business without seeing very much. But, but thankfully, the, a gentleman by the name of Robin Thorpe, um, <clears throat> who's a professor emeritus at UC Davis, um, was doing some research on bumblebees in California and Oregon. And, and he found a sister species of this species that we're talking about, the western bumblebee, was all of a sudden Anne Franklin's bumblebee, um, these two sister species to the rusty patch bumblebee, disappeared from his study sites in California, and he sort of raised the red flag, and this was in the mid-1990s, late 1990s, um, and sort of so people started paying attention, and then all of a sudden we, we realized that this species had undergone really dramatic declines. Um, but the, the bar for the Fish and Wildlife Service for protection is pretty high, and to, in order to get the scientific evidence necessary, um, you know, you had to do some studies and actually find out and truly document that the species was in decline, and, and that just took time. Um, it took a lot of time to pull information together, to go through all of these important and essential um, entomology museums that are out there and digitize the species and find out, you know, how common it once was and now how rare it was, and all of that just took a long time. And then, of course, once we got the petition written, then there's the political aspect of what the Fish and Wildlife Service does, and they're overcapacity and underfunded, and all of this just took a long time to, to come to fruition. And, you know, thankfully, I think in this case, the Fish and Wildlife Service has has done the right thing, and hopefully now we can get some on-the-ground conservation measures going um, and help this species recover. You mentioned uh, um, the controversy or the political end of having something put on the list. Uh, I was reading, because we've been covering the monarch decline as well, I mean, I, and, and, and it just boggles my mind. Now, here we're talking about two of the most iconic insect species on the planet, and they're both they, they both seem to be in a lot of trouble. Um, you could argue, and I have argued on this program, that you can count both of those. I know it's not the, the, the exact definition of megafauna. I think of them as megafauna, charismatic megafauna. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but when I was researching uh, the uh, monarch disappearance and the, the uh, debate over whether they should be put on the endangered species list, there's a good argument for not doing that. And and unfortunately, it has to do with human nature, which is you put it on there and people will rebel just because they don't like being told what to do. We're not going to save your darn monarch. You can't tell us what to do with our land kind of attitude. And and sometimes that'll blow up in your face. Did that con- uh, consideration enter your minds, Rich? Well, of course, there are a lot. I think there are a lot of misconceptions of what the Endangered Species Act does, and how a lot of people think that it infringes on private property rights, and all of those things. And I think there needs to be a parallel education campaign about how important the, the Endangered Species Act is, and how it actually works with private landowners to try to help species recover, which is in our all of our benefit. But the reality is. You know, for this species to recover, the things that are threatening it, we believe, are diseases that have been distributed by commercial bumblebees. Ah. And the bumblebee, the commercial bumblebee industry is not regulated by the federal government. I didn't know there was a commercial bumblebee. Exactly. Uh, oh, uh, okay. Uh, tell us, uh, Alan, a little bit about that. About that. Well, I mean, there's still some to be discovered about it, but uh, commercial bumblebee keeping has sort of increase in popularity over just the past several decades, which has coincidentally corresponded pretty heavily with this sharp, immediate decline of these other bumble- native bumblebee species. Um, 
Bumblebees are very good pollinators, and different kind of bees are better at pollinating different crops. So some crops, for example, tomatoes, benefit from bumblebee pollination more than, say, honeybee pollination. Um, they have this type of pollination called buzz pollination, where the, those anthers really need to be shaken really hard. Yeah, by they're the really good at that. They, the they can, like, grab it. Yeah, the bumblebee the can sort of, like, vibrate their wing muscles and shake all that. Well, they're, they're big. They're big insects, too, yeah. right? So there, there are good reasons why um, growers want bumblebees to pollinate their crops. However, um, we've seen that there are high incidences of disease, nosema being one of them. Well, um, okay, now that's bumblebees. a honeybee problem, too. Is it? Are we talking about the same kind of nosema? Well, there are multiple kinds of Yeah, I would assume there are. So it's not it's not going from one species to another. It just is this uh just something that happens when you get into managed colonies? Right. When you're growing large numbers of livestock essentially, you're sort of creating a good environment for spreading disease if you're not mm-hmm. really careful in how you do it and if there aren't regulations in place to prevent that. So they uh, are are in these hives. Uh, the disease gets in, and then, unfortunately, I assume it spreads to the wild. Right. They're brought through the landscape into the fields to pollinate crops, and that can uh, allow the crossover from the commercial bees to the native bees. Uh, and if it goes to, well, what, but there are other things. There's other things on the list, okay, right. because, and, and there's there's always that, that list of things that are causing harm uh, among them is um, habitat loss, which is a big deal, obviously. Pesticides, um, you know, and you, the two of you, Rich and Alan, uh, by the way, Alan Lawrence from the Peggy Notabart Nature Museum and uh, Rich Hatfield from uh, the uh, Xerces Society. I, I'm sure you guys get the same literature I do. And it's, it's always a group that says, we have the smoking gun. We know what's killing the bees. We know what's killing everything. And it's, uh, they always point at pesticides. I understand that instinct, but it's always much more complex than that. Isn't it, Rich? Yeah, there is there is no question about it. I think there's a lot of evidence out there that insecticides, especially this relatively new class of insecticides called neonicotinoids that are highly toxic and very persistent in the environment, there's a lot of evidence that they are causing harm to bumblebees, to honeybees, and all of the other native species that we have. But it's also really important that when we talk about these issues that we use real evidence and we talk about what we have and what we truly know as opposed to sensationalizing this and blowing it out of proportion. So I think it's really important to talk about these issues in a fact-based manner. And we do know that they're causing harm. We know that they're killing um, insects, and we know that they're creating across a vast landscape. I mean, if you look at the, if you go to the USGS website and look at the the increase in use in these toxic insecticides over the last 30 years, it is incredibly alarming to see how broadly they're used. And the problem that we have with them is that, or I don't think it's just we, I think a problem that a lot of people have with them is that they're used prophylactically. They're used without need, before need is actually demonstrated. They're used to prevent things. Yeah. And when you use them in that way, you are putting the beneficial insects in much greater harm's way than you are the negative, those 5% of insects that you were talking about before that can truly cause damage. All right, well, we're, we're going to continue uh, along that line. I want to know more about the bee itself, its habitat, uh, and what folks can do to help preserve bumblebees. We'll get uh, right back with Alan Lawrence and Rich Hatfield. I want to remind people that the Great Lakes Bioneer Speaker Series returns to McHenry County College in Crystal Lake for three dates in February, the 7th, the 21st, and 28th. Three speakers address the great challenge of our age, uh, and we're talking about it today, how to make our planet more sustainable. Sponsored by the McHenry County College Sustainability Center, this series of free talks, and they're free talks, focuses on resiliency, citizen science, and environmental justice. The final lecture on February 28th is Building the Social Justice Narrative on Our Environmental Crisis, presented by Shalini Gupta. She is co-founder and executive director of the Center for Earth, Energy, and Democracy in Minneapolis. Ms. Gupta's work is focused on foraging solutions 
forging, sorry, uh, to our environmental crises that are grounded in economic and social history. All events are at 7 p.m. in the MCC Luked Conference Center. For more information, call 815-479-7765 or visit mchenry.edu slash green. When we come back, we will continue our conversation about bumblebees. Do you see bumblebees in your yard? Are you looking forward to it? Are you wondering if any of them are the rusty patched bumblebee? Give us a call, 847-475-1590. This is the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki on 1590 WCGO. We will be right back. Hi, I'm Peggy, and I publish Natural Awakenings Magazine. And for seven years, we've been helping Chicagoans to lead healthier, happier lives. Each month, our readers enjoy new information about integrative health and wellness, local foods, raising healthy kids and pets, helping our environment, and living a more sustainable life. Get your free copy of Natural Awakenings in more than 1,100 locations throughout city and suburbs, or visit us at nachicago.com. Natural Awakenings. Feel good. Live simply. Laugh more. This is Mike Nova. Do you love nature? The Wild Things Conference features more than 100 presentations on monarchs and mosses, coyotes and prairies, otters, wildflowers, trees, and more. Don't miss this inspiring day-long conference about our local nature for anyone who wants to learn about Chicagoland natural areas and conservation efforts. For registration and details, visit wildthingscommunity.org. Wild Things, for people and nature. Enjoy local food all winter long at Winter Farmers Markets, hosted by 12 different Chicagoland houses of worship on select Saturdays and Sundays from now through March. Your purchase of local, sustainably produced food helps support regional farmers. The markets are organized by Faith in Place, a nonprofit which inspires people of diverse faiths to care for the earth through education, connection, and advocacy. For a market schedule and to learn more, go to faithinplace.org. This is Mike Novak. Chicagoans use your blue carts to recycle. Bottles, flattened boxes, mail, jugs with the lids on, tin and aluminum cans, and juice cartons. No plastic bags, including store bags. No greasy pizza boxes, styrofoam, disposable coffee cups, light bulbs, napkins, electronics, or shredded paper. Put your recyclables loose in the blue cart and not in a plastic bag. Visit RecycleByCity.com Chicago for more do's and don'ts. Let's make Chicago beautiful and green. This is your talk. You want to just put in hashtag in any of your social media. Hashtag 1590WCGO. Evanston, Chicago. Welcome back, Peggy. You want to give us uh, a way that folks can get in touch with us? Yeah, speaking of hashtags in your social media, you can reach us on Facebook at The Mike Novak Show. You can tweet to us at MikeNow. Or if you want to send your Instagram photos, especially if you're on your way to the march, the Mike Novak Show. And I imagine, well, because Peggy is the publisher of Natural Awakenings Chicago, uh, I, I, I sense, I don't know, I sense a B story coming up. Uh, in it's, one, in, it's in the February issue. Oh, how about that? And when does the February issue come out? It'll be out by next Friday. That's why you're crazy, right? <laughs> no. Is that what's going on? Okay. Uh, Alan Lawrence is in the studio. He's the Associate Curator of Entomology at Peggy Notabart Nature Museum. Rich Hatfield is on the line. Senior Endangered Species Conservation Biologist at the Xerces Society. Let's start with you, Alan. Talk about bumblebees in our backyards. Um, I see them every spring. And I assumed, now I haven't studied it that closely, that it was the rusty-patched bumblebee which is the one that was just put on the endangered species list. Uh, is it possible I'm seeing them in Chicago or not so much right now? Well, probably not if you're in the city, but if you're in the suburbs, it's definitely possible. Um, we is do this get discrimination with people yes. in the city? I'm in Logan <laughs> Square, okay? Come on. I, I don't see hummingbirds. I, don't, I, I didn't see a single monarch in my yard last year, and I have... Uh, milkweed, uh, and bumblebees are the same, huh? Yeah, but let me give you a, a visual picture of what the rusty patch bumblebee looks like. So bumblebees themselves already a rather charismatic bee, nice and plump and fuzzy. They have black and yellow hairs. And you can identify what species of bumblebee you're looking at by the banding pattern of the stripes on their thorax and abdomen. And the rusty patch bumblebee gets its name because it has this orange rusty 
patch. Now it's <laughs> surprise, uh, surprise, but it's a patch that's completely surrounded by yellow. There are some other bumblebees that have a yellow, an orange stripe. So if you uh-huh. see orange, don't necessarily oh. jump to rusty patch. Okay, and um, it's called because it's surrounded by the yellow. That's why you call it the rusty patch. Right, it's All just right. a patch. Um, but if you like to observe bumblebees in your backyard, you can go on to this citizen science project online. Just search for bee spotter. And on B-Spotter, they have some handy charts that help you identify the bumblebees, but you can also upload a photo and a little tag of where you found that bumblebee, and an expert will confirm your identification, and then that go- then goes into a record so that uh, scientists can use that data. And that's why we call it citizen science, because you can actually help scientists determine what's going on out there. Exactly. And we have had, um, I'm, I'm not part of B-Spotter, but I'm a big fan of it, so I'm promoting it. <laughs> give, uh, us that, give us that link again. Um, it's uh, just Google Bee Spotter. I'm not oh, sure okay. the exact link. I'll bet, I'll bet Peggy's looking it up right now. But yeah, I, the, the she... Peggy Notabart Nature Museum, we're big fans of citizen science. We have yeah. a few projects we run, including the Illinois Butterfly Monitoring Network and the Calling Frog Survey. Um, big fan of Bee Spotter. But you can go online, submit your data, and you can actually look up records of bees that are spotted there. And you can see if Bombus saphinus has been seen near you. And every year there are at least a few sightings so in the Chicago it's, it's area. So it's not Bombus affinus, it's affinus? That's how I say That's... it. I don't Rich, how do you say it? Affinus. Everybody, see, and you look at it on paper. I would have, I would have made an idiot of myself. Okay, <laughs> uh, but uh, Bombus affinus, and I love the, you know, I even like the the genus name for bumblebees, Bombus, Bombus. <laughs> it's it's good. Um, all right, so we're talking about creating a friendly atmosphere, a, a friendly area for bees in your backyard. Uh, Rich, what should folks do? The reality is is that, that bumblebees and other pollinators really need three things to survive. They need flowers in bloom, and those flowers need to be in bloom from early spring through fall. Uh, they need a pesticide-free environment, which is also free from diseases, and um, they also need a safe place to build their nests um, and to overwinter. And where, so, where do they build their nests? <clears throat> well, that's a... That's a good question. And we oh, really? So this is, is this a tricky one? It is. This is a tricky one, we yeah. Know they we, like, we know they like to nest underground, but do they like to use mouse burrows? Will they make their own? Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Okay. So it's yeah, not, it's, they, I, I think back when this species was more common, especially like up in Minnesota, um, I have a colleague, Elaine Evans, up there, and she used to find this species nesting even like in compost piles, like above ground, sort of all over the place, but... There aren't that many documented sightings of where all bumblebees live, let alone the rusty patch bumblebee. But so, we do believe they're associated with, with rodent nests. So okay. That seems okay. to be an important piece. Rodent nests, all right. Uh, yeah. Well, in, in Chicago, there's plenty of those, but uh, yeah. maybe not rusty patch bumblebees, uh, but I, I can show you the rodent nests. <laughs> um, well, so, but to create habitat in your backyard, nesting habitat, it's really your excuse to be lazy if you leave brush piles around. Right. Um, and let grass thatch over. You could just put a sign on it and say it's pollinator habitat, and then your neighbors will be happy, and you'll be happy, and bumblebees will be happy. I was just going to say, as you were describing where their nests are, <laughs> that neatness freaks are not helping out bumblebees. And there's a lot of gardeners who are neatness freaks. And in the fall, they rake up everything, they smooth it over. It says we can't have anything out of place. Me, I just let everything drop. It's a, it's. I love the mm-hmm. win the winter mess. In yeah. my backyard, it's, it's habitat in the winter too. Yeah, yeah, and that that those leaves on the ground, we believe that the the, the new queens they overwinter actually underneath that leaf layer. It gives them insulation and helps protect them from the really cold winter cool. temperatures. So that leaf layer is really wow. important in the winter time. So if I'm seeing now, is this just the rusty patch or all bumblebees behave all bumblebees. like? Okay, so I'm helping bumblebees just by having those leaves on the ground right now. We, we believe so. Yes. And that's the key. Helping the rusty patch bumblebee will help all bumblebees. That's true. Uh, uh, all right. So rusty patch is in danger. Are any of the other, uh, Alan, uh, any of the other species in danger right now? Um, nothing's up for listing for endangered, but a number of the other species are also experiencing declines. Really? So we're, we're experiencing patch. overall declines here. That, right. That's actually not true. There are two right. species that have been petitioned for endangered species protection. One of them okay. is the western bumblebee. Um, and the other one is Franklin's bumblebee, and those petitions are both in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's hands, um, and they have not yet responded officially to those petitions. Um, the 
I am the I'm the IUCN Red List Court um, Coordinator for the Bumblebee Specialist Group. So we are our my goal or my my job for that is to assess all the extinction risk of all species of bumblebees in the world. There's 250 species, and we've finished the assessments of North American bumblebees, and it shows that about one in four North American bumblebees is facing some degree of extinction risk. Oh my goodness! Wow, that's uh, that's terrifying, that's actually. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's wow. so. Go back to Peggy Re- Notabart and okay, say Okay, say that one more time. One in four. One in four bumblebees in North America is facing some degree of extinction risk. So the IUCN is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and they put uh, a category basically on every animal, or their goal is to put a category, an extinction risk category, on every animal. And the, the, the most endangered is sort of critically endangered. Well, you can have extinct and then critically endangered, endangered, and then vulnerable, and near-threatened. And one in four bumblebees in North America is either vulnerable or higher on that list. Wow. That's that's amazing stuff. By the way, that is uh, Rich Hatfield uh, from the Xerces Society on the phone. Alan Lawrence from Peggy Notabart Nature Museum uh, is here in the studio with us. Um, I had a question, and it's kind of flown out of my head. Like a bumblebee, I guess, sort of do do do. Oh, what was it? Ah, oh, I know. We it, we we asked this of Ron Calgill in the show before. Uh, do they sting? I didn't. I I really don't know. Are you asking me? Um, yeah, do bumblebees? Either sting? either one of you. Who wants to Who wants to step up and and they they can, but good luck getting one too. I mean, you kind of really have to bother them quite a bit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's Pretty what docile. I. That's what I would assume is that, like honeybees, you know, unless you really mess with them, they're they're pretty much going to leave you alone, right? That's right. Yeah, they're they're called bumblebees for a reason. They're just out there, sort of bumbling through the landscape. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like how how do you mess with that, something like that? It just I don't I don't get it's, it. Yeah, yeah, people are just misplaced scared well they are and and i'll say something here that i've said before um and sometimes i get in trouble for it but my feeling personally having been a gardener for a long time and having done this show for a long time is that if you if you have a backyard uh in a garden in your backyard i don't know that there's any reason ever to use a pesticide uh, my feeling about it is you can take care of stuff yourself. You can manage it in a way that everybody's going to live happily together. I just, I just think that people are obsessed with products. Yeah, or and, and they want perfect plants, not understanding little chews in their plants are feeding the beneficial insects. Either one of you can respond to this, that even the, the, the lawn care pesticides uh, have an impact on bumblebees. Yeah, there's no, there's, I, I, I can't thank you enough for saying that because I think we are at a point with the amount of habitat we have lost in North America that suburban and urban and rural lawns have to be functional ecosystems, and toxic insecticides have no part um, in that. And, and yes, lawn care, if you're removing weeds from your grassy lawn, those dandelions and clovers, like those are great bumblebee food plants. And if you're if you have to have that perfect green lawn that without a single weed in it, you're you're there's no question that you're harming and removing food food plants from bees. And I just want to reiterate uh, pesticide use, habitat degradation, inequality, and lack of floral resources all play together as stressors against these bumblebees, which can reduce their ability to handle these diseases. Okay, gentlemen, I want to thank you both so much for being on board. Uh, go to my website. Uh, and you can get all the information about Peggy Notabart, about Xerces Society. Go to MikeNovak.net. Uh, Rich Hatfield, thank you so much for being. we got to do this again sometime soon. And Alan Lawrence, thank you as well. Thanks for having me, Mike. We really uh, appreciate it. You guys have a great Saturday. Thank you, yeah, and you happy too. birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, one of the great things about January, and one of them is my birthday, is uh, that for gardeners, this is a time a year when you chart your course for the coming growing season. Arr. But if you don't know your hybrid seed from your compost pile, Chicagoland Gardening Magazine is the magazine for garden types in the region. 
Can I drop the accent now? Yes, please. It, it's hurting me. Larynx are. The January-February <laughs> issue, which is now out, has a seasonal guide that will walk you through each month and tell you what to do along the way. And did I tell you that I have a scurvy column on the inside back page of each Arr. issue? Arr. It hurts. Chicagoland Gardening Magazine, a publication of state-by-state gardening magazines. Go to chicagolandgardening.com. But if you're in other parts of the Midwest or the South, try one of the 21 magazines in those regions by going to statebystategardening.com or call 888-265-3600, 888-265-3600. Stick around. Rick DeMaio, meteorologist, coming up. DNR Services Unlimited has been serving the north and northwest suburbs since 1992. They can take care of those little problems that never get done. They perform complete bathroom, basement, and kitchen remodels. And if you're looking for a complete home makeover, they can handle that too. Visit their website at RestoreTheNorthShore.com or give them a call at 847-998-1687. That's RestoreTheNorthShore.com or give them a call at 847-998-1687. It'll be easy to find someone cheaper, but a lot harder to find someone better. Celebrate local, sustainable, humane, and fair food at the Good Food Festival. Connect with local farmers and food producers. Learn from chefs like Rick Bayless and Paula Haney. Shop the Good Food Marketplace and enjoy delicious food in the Good Food Court. Entry to Saturday's General Festival is free with online registration. Good Food happens Saturday, March 18th at the UIC Forum in Chicago. Visit goodfoodfestivals.com. Captain's log, stardate 42326.1. The Enterprise is under attack by an apparently hostile life form. Mr. Wolf, status report. Inexplicable, Captain. They appear to be perambulating vegetables. We are being stalked by stalks of asparagus. That is incorrect, Mr. Wolf. Asparagus officinalis, or killer asparagus, was the subject of a very popular 21st century tome by the brilliant author Mike Novak. Mike Novak. I'm familiar with his work. Mike Novak was one of the smartest, funniest people in the horticultural world of the 21st century. Sound red alert. Shields up. Tell me more, Mr. Data. He has been variously compared to Mark Twain, Dave Barry, and Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe, author of my favorite children's stories. Captain, I am attempting to access a copy of the masterpiece. Hmm, it seems to be available online at AroundTheBlockPress.com. 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 Yes, Mr. Watt. Yes, Captain. AroundTheBlockPress.com. How many times can I say it? This is your talk. Hey, this place is really something else, huh? Only on 1590 WCGO. Evanston, Chicago. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show on 1590 WCGO. Uh, I'm here with Peggy Malecki, as always. We had a guy call just before we had to break, and um, would love to get your question because I can pass it along to Alan uh, and or Rich. Uh, send me an email, mike at mikenovak.net, M-I-K-E-N-O-W-A-K.net, because uh, we, we certainly want to help folks answer their questions, and I'm glad you called in. Sorry we weren't able to get to you. Mr. DeMaio is on the phone from the left coast out in Seattle. Good morning, Rick. Yeah, good morning, Mike, from uh, a time zone that is two hours earlier than you, so you <laughs> only one on this one. I, I do, I know. So well, do you have a nice, fresh Seattle brew in your hands right now, coffee? Uh, yeah, actually, Peg, I, I, I had to go outside and um, uh, put money in the meter because I didn't want to pay the exorbitant parking fee for the hotel, and... <laughs> And I came across the lovely little uh, mom-and-pop joint, even though the uh, Starbucks is just around the corner, and there was another one just around the other corner, another one just around the other corner. You get the picture on that, right? Well, I, and it's Seattle after yes. all, okay. Yeah, but the original one is only a block and a half away from where I'm staying. So um, I'm looking forward to going over there and getting uh, another coffee. But to answer your question, yes, I have one in my hand at this very moment. Cool. So, uh, and, and while you're out there, look for your Seattle copy of Natural Awakening. Bring one back. Oh, I will. I will go ahead and do that. Matter of fact, from where I'm sitting right now, uh, from the eighth floor of my hotel room, uh, nice little thin overcast, but I can see the Space Needle. Uh, they've actually had a little bit of reprieve from the um, the horrible winter cold that kind of gripped this area for almost three weeks. And I kind of lucked out. Uh, it's going to be like in the mid-40s around here the next two or three days, which is normal. 
for us. But it's very interesting because I, I always tell people, uh, particularly students, when you when you go to a different part of the United States, um, the first thing you should do is you walk outside, close your eyes, and smell the air. And you can actually feel that there's a difference um, in the type of humidity here uh, compared to the type of humidity that you get in the Midwest and sometimes in Florida and definitely uh, when you're in Hawaii. So you, you definitely notice that, that Pacific air has that, that smell and that feel. And certainly when it's temperatures in the low 40s and it's a little bit more variable, you can, you can kind of enjoy that sniff, I guess, a little bit better. You know, uh, having spent a fair amount of time out in Seattle over the years, there are two things. You're right about the smell, but I, I, you're thinking of it in terms of humidity. I think just the smell. I smell earth when I when yeah. I, well, I would get off. Yeah. The, I would get off the plane. You could just smell the earth there. There's something different about Seattle. It's the salt yeah. air too, and maybe the salt air yeah, as well. Yeah, salt air, right? That's exactly right. And now the, you got to you got to be careful because you know marijuana was legalized here. So <laughs> one of the things is I've opened up the um, uh, the the Seattle's best, and there's an actual page in the middle of the magazine and I'm looking, I'm like, wow, look at all of these places where you can, you know, purchase marijuana. And I didn't realize it, but it was the Kush guide. The entire page was places where you can purchase marijuana. And I'm not kidding you. I'll send you a picture. There was probably 30 different sites within probably maybe a two mile radius from where I am right now. So wow. um, hopefully I'll find my way back to the airport. <laughs> Coming to a state near you, maybe not so much anymore. Uh, the other thing about being in Seattle is you can tell it's a clear day if you can see Mount Rainier. Can you see Rainier right. today? Well, I haven't gotten that far from my hotel, but um, I have a feeling that I probably will because looking at the cloud deck, it's about um, twelve to 15,000 feet, and with that mountaintop being at 14, 410, um, I think I shouldn't have any problem. Um, and, of course, I'm out here because I'm here for the American Meteorological Society, annual conference uh already you can kind of see the the geek fest beginning to develop you see people walking around with backpacks that they probably haven't exchanged for a briefcase yet when they probably should um but it is really interesting because you know this is the annual conference so there's about 4,500 of us that get together um and it's at the washington state convention center uh, it kicks off um, tomorrow night. There's actually the broadcaster conference uh, today and tomorrow, which I used to go to. Uh, but the conference um, this year is, is a little bit more geared towards climate change and sustainability. But when you, when you thumb through the, the registration guide online or the program, it's really broken down. It's almost like five entities. You have climate change. Um, you have broadcasting. You have aviation. Uh, you have education, which is always a huge component. How do we educate our students? How do we keep our students smarter now? And, and, and a newer one, which is emerging technology. I mean, weather is the number one app that's downloaded on everybody's phone. And it's amazing how much information you can get. And the hard part is figuring out which is good, which is not good, and, and what to do with it and, and how to make it work. Uh, and uh, are, you, uh, are you just... Make, are you uh, attending? Are you doing a presentation of any kind? No, I'm just attending. Um, I, I was asked to do a presentation for aviation, but I just, I just didn't have the time over the last um, six months because something like this, um, you're, you're vetted at, at, at certain, you know, at, at several levels. You got to get your, your proposal in. Uh, you have to get your, um, your information in, in, a, in a paper form. It's got to be approved by a couple of different ranks. And when I when I spoke at a conference out in Boston a few years ago and and down in Austin, you get you get chosen for this like literally six months ahead of time. So mm. the amount of work that goes into it um, is 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 quite daunting. And the interesting thing about this, Mike and Peg, is it's science. You know, we're here talking about about how to observe the atmosphere, how to observe the impacts that the atmosphere has on, on people, on the economy, on, on the environment, on animals, on, on the future. You know, when you, when you take a stand on, when you talk to people about climate change and climate variability, all they want to do is observe the science and, and report on it. So when, when you hear all this stuff, you know, prior to, the, you know, what happened yesterday in Washington, D.C. during the election, you just have people shaking their heads. 
But I have to say there's a little bit of hope because a couple of the appointees actually went against, you know, Donald Trump and said, I do believe that climate has changed. I do believe that humans have some cause on it. Um, and what we don't know is how to go about changing, you know, that that arrow from down to up and then and then what to do about it. So that, that I thought was was kind of encouraging. Whether or not that's going to go through the process once they get nominated is another thing. All right, you got a little over a minute here. Uh, it's fifty something degrees in Chicago. It's crazy today. Good, <laughs> yeah. good day for a march, though. Uh, so uh, tell yeah. us, tell us what's going on in about a minute here. Yeah, sure, no problem. So the same mild pattern that's been over us is generally going to be here for at least another couple of days. So mid fifties today, a lot of low clouds and fog. Uh, that'll eventually dissipate. Uh, well, a couple of, we'll see a couple of sprinkles come through later on this afternoon, but without a doubt, mid to upper 50s, I don't know what the record is. I feel bad about that, but it's going to be getting close to that. Uh, then a little bit of a cool down. Uh, mid 40s tomorrow with the big storm system that moves to the east of us, producing very windy, very rainy conditions generally across Indiana, and then a general cool down beginning on Monday in the low 40s. And then Tuesday, Wednesday is when we start to get back into more winter precipitation. Mid-30s Wednesday and Thursday, and by this time next week, guys, uh, we'll be talking about temperatures in the 20s and winter returning. So enjoy today, enjoy tomorrow, because things change next week. Well, it's my birthday, so I wanted 50s, and and thank you for delivering. I appreciate that. (laughs) You're welcome. It's got a bow on it. I can't wait to hear uh, about your uh, hobnobbing with your fellow meteorologists. We'll talk about that next week, Rick. Can't wait to, Have a good week, guys. Can't wait to read Rick's article in our February issue, too. That's right, coming up. All right, and, talk. And I'll, and I'll get you a natural awakening from Seattle, Pig. Talk cool. to you next week. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, I want to thank everybody uh, who is on the show today, and that includes uh, Rick DeMaio, meteorologist, Alan Lawrence uh, from the Peggy Notabart Nature Museum, Rich Hatfield from Xerces Society. Thanks to Ben. Spinning the dials. And uh, Peggy Malecki, of course. I'm your genial host, Mike Novak. Until next week, go green or go home. Uh, Stadler? Yeah, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. If you live in the upper Midwest and you're already jonesing to plant stuff, you need to get your hands on a grow light from Happy Leaf LED. At 18 inches, it's small but mighty. You can start three conventionally sized flats of seeds in a roughly three by two foot area. You can even grow plants that flower and produce fruit. How does Happy Leaf do it? The light is tuned for all plant growth, including flowering plants. You name it, this USA-made LED light can grow it your indoor garden will be limited only by your imagination. It's already won the 2017 Direct Gardening Association Green Thumb Award. With the Happy Leaf LED, there's no reason you can't have your own delicious, fresh, leafy greens year-round, not to mention all the herbs you need for any recipe. Find out more about the Happy Leaf LED light at happyleafled.com or call 815-414-2209. Happy Leaf, it's about the light.